welcome to Tax Yak, a tax banter podcast. We love yakking about tax, so we've invited a range of tax experts and practitioners to have a chat with us. We hope you enjoy this episode of Tax Yak. I'm Robin Jacobson, a senior tax trainer with Tax Banter and your host of today's podcast. I'm joined by a guest that we've had on the show previously, in fact, two guests that we've had recently, Marsha Lane Dungog and Al Nunez, both of Anderson from San Francisco in the United States. Marsha is a Director of Private Client Services International at Anderson and is an international tax lawyer who provides cross-border tax advisory, tax compliance and controversy services for high net wealth individuals, businesses and US citizens living abroad. Al is Managing Director at Anderson and specialises in tax reporting for multinational public and private corporations, ASC 740 and uncertain tax positions, transfer pricing, compliance and planning. And both Marsha and Al join me virtually from San Francisco in the US. So hello over there. Hi, Robin. Good evening. Good, good evening from San good Francisco. Good evening to and both of you. My afternoon you know, here. So I'm You're so late evening there. Back again, yeah. And uh, you know, as you know, this is our first real cross-border webcast uh, podcast because we're actually physically in San Francisco and not in your studio in Melbourne. Yep. But so absolutely. So look, our- we're basically doing a, a joint podcast here. I'm going to be sharing you with our audiences, and I believe you're going to be sharing me with yours. Yes. So what I'd like to do is introduce you also to our U.S. audience. Um, Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Tax Banter Extension in San Francisco. Uh, We are joined by the host of Tax Banter herself, Ms. Robin Jacobson. She's very well known in training circles in Australia, and she's been a professional tax trainer for 23 years, a regular conference webinar presenter, and she's had nearly 30 years experience in the accounting profession. She has a very big and huge public practice background. She is, as you know, she we did we mentioned we we recorded previously in Melbourne. She's there right now. Um, and uh, she continues to be very active and be very uh, prolific in all of her uh, social media postings, even though we've all been quarantined for a few weeks now. Uh, she provides training to a tax bander. You know, there's, she has a lot of acronyms to her, the end of her name, but she's a chartered accountant uh, in Australia, New Zealand, a CPA Australia. She's a chartered tax advisor for the Tax Institute and a registered tax agent. My goodness, Robin. And then on top of that, she is also a member and a num- of a number of committees in the Tax Institute and CPA Australia. She regularly consults with the Treasury, the, the Australian Tax Office, and the professional bodies on technical issues. Robin is an avid advocate, social media commentator, blogger, host of Tax Banter's popular podcast, Tax Yak, and is regularly quoted in the media. And last but not the least, in 2019, Robin was featured in the CPA Australia Qantas Future Thinker series, just in case you think her voice sounds familiar, maybe, or maybe you've seen, probably read about her on Qantas. And, um, you know, she was recognized in the Women in Finance Award 2019 as the winner of Thought Leader of the Year and has recently been named in the Global Top 50 Women in Accounting 2019. Whoa, wow, Robin, truly, this is an epic, epic podcast. Thank you Absolutely for- Absolutely it is. I am so cross-border podcast. Definitely, and um, hopefully the voices don't overlap too much. It's a bit difficult when we're, we're doing this across the Pacific Ocean. But what I'm really excited about is that we can compare notes. Um, your country's in this amazing grip of this global pandemic, as is Australia. And I thought it would be a great idea if we had a chat about what is happening in your country and what is happening as ours and compare notes. Yeah. Yeah, looking yeah. forward to it. Terrific. So welcome both and uh, let's get on with it. Yeah, let's get on with it. Because when we were there in Australia in February, I think the coronavirus was just starting, Um, you know, as far as awareness of it when we were getting into the airport. How has, what's the, what's the status of the coronavirus uh, pandemic over in your country, Robin, in Australia right now? Look, uh, we'll give you some data, but I just want to give your listeners a bit of context as to the size of Australia, because um, hopefully everyone over there knows where we are. But our population is about 25 million, 25, 26 million, call it that. So we're about 13 times smaller than the US population, just to give a a bit of context. Okay, that's that's very good to know. I'm looking at current data from the Department of Health 
and that's as of this morning, we have 6,052 cases of people who have tested positive for COVID-19 and we have now 50 deaths. Now, I think that's probably going to be dwarfed by your figures. Yeah, well, Robin, as you know, the U.S. is a pretty big country. I mean, we've got, you know, so many states and so many different territories and regions. But we are, as of April 5, 2020, we're about 330 million people strong. And as of today, April 8, based on the CDC website, uh, total cases of COVID-19 reported are 395,011. And total deaths are uh, 12,754. And uh, e although it does appear as of the COVID uh, briefing today that you know, uh, the social uh, distancing measures undertaken by the government are working, we're still having, a, uh, we're still going through our big surge whereby the number of cases every day in different states are just phenomenal. I mean, in California, we've got, we've got 800 cases a day. In New York, we've got 11,000 cases a day. And, you know, in Philadelphia, 1,400 cases a day. So, you know, it's definitely, we're not far from, uh, you know, the, the, the tunnel, light at the end of the tunnel here. What about yours? Where are you in the, whether it's a U or a W or a bell, as they say, when they're projecting this? this What's the pandemic? shape of the, the worm almost? What's the shape of the pandemic with you over there? Look, there is talks that we are starting to maybe flatten out a bit. And certainly that doesn't mean that our social distancing measures are going to be relieved. And I can mention those in a, my moment. I've just done some rough numbers. If your population is about 13 times the size of ours, mm -hmm. and we've projected our rates of uh, being, um, in terms of um, the diagnosis and testing positive for COVID-19 and the number of deaths, I would place the figures at about 79 to 80,000 testing positive in the US using our ratios and about 660 deaths. But you are so far and ahead of that. So I you just know, wanted to ask you, why is the US so much worse? It's not just a case you've got more people than us because I've just taken that into account in my numbers here. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I think that's still, uh, that remains to be seen why we're so much worse off than everybody. But, you know, I think it, we, we, we got hit really fast and uh, we have a lot of dense populations. Uh, New York City in particular is very, very dense. I mean, I think, Robin, you mentioned you were supposed to come here in May. To yes, it's cancelled now. Yeah, I mean, literally bodies are on top of each other in, term, in terms of, you know, density. And maybe Al has a thought or two as to why we're, our, our numbers are so high. You, you know, the, the, the nation didn't act as one to lock down. And it's, it's really interesting. It's, it's almost scary when you look at some of the mobile phone data. For example, they show folks that were attending spring break in the Florida beaches. And the data is anonymized, but uh, anonymous, but uh, they go home and they went home to New York. They went home to Michigan. They mm -hmm. went home to all these places. And so unfortunately, you know, it got the best of everyone before folks took it seriously here. But I can tell you now, you cannot find a grocery store in San Francisco that does not have blue tape every six feet on the sidewalk outside so that folks can practice safe social distancing. Yeah, I understand. So in Australia, we've got different measures which are both federal and state-based. So the states are basically running their own show at the moment in terms of the social distancing, but we've also got mm -hmm. this overlay by the federal government. So mm. the federal government is telling us if we are to go outside, not at work and not with family members, we are limited to two people together at a time. So we can't mix in groups of more than two people. And this was originally 50 and then it became oh, 100 and then they dropped it down and dropped it down. But we're now two. So you can't go out socialising with your friends at the moment. Um, in a family context, of course, if you've got a family of five people, then that's OK. Um, you're allowed to work, but it's really saying you only leave your house if you need to buy food or supplies for your home, if you've got a medical appointment or for exercise. That's about it. Yeah, that's pretty much like us too, but I don't think we're limited to two. I think we are supposed to be, before we had some numbers out, if I remember, we weren't allowed to have more than 150 people in a function. And then that started whittling down. And now I'm not even sure if we're allowed with, for two because our rule is everyone has to be within six feet of each other at least. And now we need to have a gas mask and all that stuff. So you've got to have mandatory masks now. Uh, it's been recommended, yeah, but you know it's not being followed right now. I just went, you know, I look, I'm looking outside, and not everybody has a, a gas mask or even like a, not a gas mask, but you know, a, a covering. Uh, what do you call it? A cloth covering. 
um, yeah. because you know we we want to make sure we have enough of those um, very important masks for our healthcare workers. Look, the economic impact has been absolutely decimating businesses because we've had mandatory shutdown of certain businesses like beauticians, gymnasiums, mm-hmm. uh, restaurants and bars and pubs. If yep. you're a cafe, then you can still serve takeaway, but you can't have anyone sit in and dine in. So some businesses have been forced to shut. Others are choosing to. So across the retail sector, our major department store, Maya, has closed all of its stores. So there's still a lot of online shopping available, of course, but so many of the stores have chosen to close even though they haven't been ordered to. Yeah, well, that's the same here. I mean, we have also, you know, the beautician stores are down. I mean, the nail salons are gone. And we haven't, I think every, we were joking the other day that, you know, everyone's, Al's hair is four inches now, you know, he needs a trail. <laughs> How many hairy, grey-haired women are going to be walking around the world in the next few months? I think once we emerge from this uh, quarantine, we're all going to be like, is that you? And then we're going to need some really, the salons are going to be back in you know, restaurants are also, um, you know, the, the, the restaurant industry has been hit really hard. And now it's only now that we're having, you know, restaurants doing takeouts. And, you know, we have some uh, food trucks that are going around, but then it's a totally no contact thing. You order ahead and you pick it up. And, you know, we've got pubs and our bars are closed and our gyms, Robin, our gyms are gone. So, you know, um, people have to do this social distancing when they're doing their exercise too. And, We've got a lot of parks, but lately, the last two weekends, there's been reports, there's lots of police cars going around monitoring because everyone's going to the park now to get their, you know, their exercise. And it's hard in a very densely populated city like San Francisco. I mean, I don't even remember what our population was. I mean, um, Al, do you know our population in SF alone? It's about 830,000. And and one of the more interesting things is, you know, with everybody off the streets, the animals are coming back at night. So it started off with coyotes coming out of the Presidio and the various parks. And now there's reports of mountain lions that are straying down, you know, because they, you know, there's no one out and they go to where the easy food is at. Of course. Yeah. And I wanted to smog and everything else. So people are seeing the stars. (laughs) I wanted to share a story with you that I heard. Um, I deal with a a fellow who's an advisor over in Dubai in the UAE. Mm. And he was telling me about a story where a family had uh, left the UAE on a holiday, a brief holiday. And I believe they're Australian expatriates. So what had happened was they'd traveled across to Oman and didn't have mobile phone coverage while they were there. And so the UAE in the meantime had closed its borders and they weren't aware of this. So they left Amman to drive back into the UAE. And there is apparently about a 200 metre car park that sits between the two countries' borders. So they've exited the UAE, sitting in this car park, and then went to enter the UAE. And the UAE said, you can't come in. So they did a U-turn and went back to Amman, who said, you can't come back in either. Oh, no, so they're stuck in the car park? They're stuck in the car park. And oh, my gosh. Days. This is family of five that can't get into either country. And I said, look, I get they've got shelter. They can be in the car. But I said, what are they doing for food? I see a movie with Tom Hanks. <laughs> I think you couldn't even have someone who exits the UAE to bring them food because then they would be blocked out. So what, they're, they're using a helicopter to drop it down to them? I know. But these are extraordinary bad. stories that are coming out of this. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm seeing every day, you know, the, the, um, the emails coming from the consulate, the U.S. consulate in Sydney talking about how the borders there are being closed for domestic travel between, you know, New South, well, between uh, Western Australia, you know, the Northern Territories, you know, Queensland, Tasmania. Queensland closed its borders. Yeah. WA has definitely closed its borders. Tasmania has basically said, um, unless you've got a reason to come in, they're basically putting all the states in lockdown. It's, it's fascinating from a, a logistical perspective, but it's actually extraordinary to think how the whole country is just grinding to a halt at the moment. Yeah, and right now we don't have that here. I think that's a really big difference between our the measures undertaken by your government and ours. I mean, we don't have a complete locking off of the borders between the states yet. Um, and, and the social distancing is still, you know, per the governors, you know, although there's recommendations by the federal government, I think because under their constitution, you know, the health and safety of the population is really uh, resides with the states. It's the, the states have primary authority and then the federal is a backup. But, you know, in times like this, not a federal disaster. You know, we have to 
coordinate, but there's still no consensus on the lockdown between, you know, the different states. So it's that could be making a huge difference. Yeah. I wanted yeah. to cover two more things before we move into much more serious economic stimulus package issues. <laughs> um, how's your toilet paper stocks going over there? I don't know. You know? <laughs> I think our toilet papers has not been replenished, Robin. I think, you know, when you go into Costco here, you still have to just get one roll. That's it. You know? I can't find paper towels. That's the thing that we can't find. There's plenty of toilet paper, just no paper towels. So Gosh, and we're struggling with tissues as well. I know. Yeah. How's your yeah. stock over there, Robin? Have you checked? Look, I think people have obviously got probably nine to 12 months worth of toilet paper in their homes now. So we're actually starting to see some toilet paper back on the shelves again. It's quite amazing. There were folks actually trying to return pallets full of toilet paper they had bought to Costco. I just, and Costco refused to take it back. So good for good. them. Good. Yeah. Um, but I have heard on a more serious note, um, increased numbers of Americans purchasing weapons. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, especially in Texas, I think there's an increase, there's a surge in the buying of guns because it's, you know, stressed out people are starting to, you know, whenever this happens, there tends to be one sector uh, that tends to blame, you know, everybody else who looks Asian. Uh, to be, you know, the, the bringing the virus over and everything else. So, you know, that's, uh, and it, it's resulted in a bunch of, um, you know, hate crimes and hostility, and it's just, everyone's just on the edge, but particularly towards the, uh, the Asian American community. It, and that it, is it, a sad thing. It is interesting that it varies by the geography within the country. So within California, you know, uh, gun stores were declared not an essential service. And so they are shut down here in California. But when you go to, you know, some of the more conservative states, they're, they're open up. And then vice versa, California, or at least San Francisco's declared the, uh, the cannabis stores to be a necessary service. So, and, and the liquor stores are still open. So, but I, I would imagine, you know, it, it makes life much easier on the police department with a bit of bread and circuses. Understand. Yeah. yeah, shutting down pubs in Australia, that's just sacrilege. Stopping people getting beer at the pub, my goodness. No, but you know what? I don't think you've shut down the schools yet, Robin, have you? Because there's no shut down. No, we haven't. And that's being managed on a state basis at the moment as well. So we may still reach that point. It's the yeah. schools that's killing everybody because when we have conference calls during the day or I speak with uh, coworkers in the evening, the ones that are having the hardest time are the ones that have the kids at home and have to deal with them. Teachers have a newfound appreciation. I think yeah. we've got this whole new, not just looking at each other's homes in all these webcasts and webinars and Zoom sessions that are being conducted, but we're getting used to the family or the dog or the baby being in the background. It's just kind of par for the course now. Yeah, it's like, oh, don't bother. That's just the baby needing a little diet for change. Exactly. You know, but, but it so, is kind of, you know, stressful. Can we compare packages now? Um, I can yes. share with you what Australia is doing in terms of what it's giving out, but what's the value of the US assistance package, the, the economic stimulus package? Well, well, the one that everybody's heard about, the Paytex Paycheck Protection Loans, excuse me, uh, that's about $349 billion. And that's aimed at companies that have 500 or less employees. And it's really a grant program because if you use it for the intended purposes, payroll, utilities, et cetera, it'll be forgiven after two years. Uh, but one of the more interesting things, one of the things I'm curious to hear from you is, you know, the, the Fed Reserve has bought trillions of dollars of paper. I mean, they are keeping the wheels running. They're, they're, they are making sure that liquidity exists within the market because that is the one thing. Everybody's fine staying at home, but if the ATMs don't work, people have a tendency to, uh, to get nervous. So you're saying they're printing money? Well, they're doing it through quantitative easing. So what they're doing is they're taking assets off of banks and in some cases, um, you know, and, 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 you know, ETFs and taking assets off of their books so that they can have the liquidity for when folks want to cash out. Uh, you know, and it's, it's going to be very interesting in the next few months. Just think about the loan servicing industry. And, you know, it doesn't matter if no one's paying. Someone's got to, the loan servicers got to pay those folks that bought into the mortgages. So it, it's going to be very interesting. But I think uh, a lot of the, uh, the, the straightforward economic stuff uh, or the more esoteric economic stuff like that, folks aren't focused on. Uh, they're really focused on when am I getting my check? Why isn't it here yet? And when is the next check after that going to arrive? Your unemployment, I assume, is increasing significantly? 
Oh, yes. I, I think we have over a million people here in California. There were there's there's about three and a half million people a week applying for unemployment, and that's another area again where the geography of the country is is causing different results. Um, some of the more conservative states have systems that aren't meant to be user friendly, and so people are literally standing in line with paper uh, in, in in the midst of all of this applying for unemployment. Yeah. What's the total value? of your package? Because I've heard figures being thrown around of two trillion. Is that correct? Yep. I think that's pretty much correct. It's where are the trillions, Robin? What about your package? Well, I've got to remember we're a much smaller country than yours. <laughs> but the total value of the package to date, and it's been announced over three different stages, we're hovering around the $320 billion mark. And just last night, the government passed through a special sitting of parliament so they specially recalled them to bring them back to canberra they passed the new job keeper payment legislation now this is the biggest financial package in australia's history and that package alone is 130 billion dollars which is just massive for australia what does that have what does it have a, what are the components of it so the premise of the job keeper package is that it's a wage subsidy being paid to employers so if I could use this analogy, you've got a, a saucepan with boiling water sitting on the stove. And when it's boiling, it's active and it's, it's operating and, and the economy is great. But what they want to do is they've had to shut things down either by forcefully shutting business like the, the gymnasiums and the beauticians and the restaurants that just are not allowed to trade. Or we've got others that have chosen to shut down or due to lack of business. Look at the airlines. No one's forced them to shut down, but they've been decimated by uh, the right. services because no one's travelling at the moment. Same with hotels and motels and the whole tourism industry. So where you've got a reduction in your turnover, so it depends how big you are. If you're over mm -hmm. $1 billion of turnover, then you've got to show that you've had a 50% or more reduction in your turnover. Mm -hmm. If you're under $1 billion, it's a 30% reduction. Okay. And what they're trying to do is with this saucepan on the stove, they don't want to turn the gas off and let the water go cold because then it takes a really long time to bring it back to the boil again. So okay. they're wanting to turn it down to a simmer, keep it warm so that it's really easy to just quickly fire it up again and we can get the business running. So oh, That's a very good analogy. Thank you. So rather than businesses closing and dismissing staff and, and laying them off, they're saying to these businesses, look, you may not be operating, you may not have your doors open, you may not be trading, in which case there'd be effectively 100% loss of revenue compared to the same time last year. Right. But keep your employees on the books and we'll help you do that by paying you this wage subsidy. Mm. So it's at the rate of $1,500 a fortnight per eligible employee and the employer can then use that to pass the money on to the employee to keep them with a source of income while this is all in that simmer phase. Oh, wow. And this is really brand new. It's only we saw some draft rules yesterday briefly, which actually hit the Treasury website and then they got taken down again. So we're waiting for the fine print. But so I'm this assuming is, that's also going to be taxable to the employee then? Or is it what, what? Yes, it would. It's effectively replacing wages. So it'll be paid to them in the form of wages. It'll be subject to tax. As for the employer, they will pay tax on the subsidy but then they'll get a tax deduction for whatever they pay out to the employee. So it generally would net off for the employer. Got it. But Got there's it. a lot of confusion about how's it going to work and how do I demonstrate my turnover's dropped and who's eligible. Yeah, this started on the 30th of March. The first right. fortnightly period ends this Sunday in the middle of Easter. This and is probably the fastest legislation you've ever done. Oh, ordinarily, we have a lovely measured pace. We have announcements and then they release discussion papers and then they'll put out exposure draft legislation and then the bill's introduced into parliament after all the submissions are considered and it's debated and you know months or right. years later it becomes law in any other time it would be outrageous for there to be no draft legislation released ahead of bills being tabled in the parliament but we don't have that luxury at the moment yep. so the parliament is literally tabling bills without us seeing them beforehand they are being introduced, debated and passed within the one sitting day. So it got introduced at about 10, 10.30 yesterday morning and it got passed by the parliament at about 10.30 uh, last night. That's incredible. Oh. And it got enacted today. That and this has happened twice now. 
Wow. So it's remarkable what they can actually do. And when the, the opposition and the government actually work together as they are at the moment, um, it is remarkable how quickly we're getting these new measures in place, which is obviously needed and, and very essential. Right. But then again, you have to draft the rules. You know, the, 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 the devil is in details, right? Yes, and it is. And someone, now it comes to the, the details. Well, now it passes to the Commissioner of Taxation and all his stuff. So yeah. the ATO now needs to work through those rules, consider their position, when are they going to exercise discretion, what guidance are they going to provide, write that guidance, and then make it available to the business and the individual community. And then as practitioners who are just inundated at the moment with questions from clients, you know, a bit like what you're saying, when am I going to get it and how much and am I eligible? And right. not all of these questions can be answered at the moment. Well, it seems like a similar feeling here. I mean, Al's been dealing with it a lot um, yeah. on the commercial practice. So what's yeah, your experience, you know, Al? We, I, I wish that we would have been as quick to act legislatively as you guys were. We were a bit slow. Uh, you know, at least the stock market thought that, uh, you know, that we were a bit slow in acting. But uh, it, it, it has been uh, an interesting rollout for the loans, I would say. Again, the devil's in the details, and so we've seen almost daily releases from the IRS, the Internal Revenue Service, clarifying and expanding the guidance that's come out on, on some of these programs, and uh, the SBA itself has, has been providing almost daily updates, FAQs, on applying for the various loan programs, and so it it's been nice in that the web servers, et cetera, I know that some people have had frustrations, but in general, it's been a very smooth rollout considering all the underwriting changes that had to be made at the Small Business Administration. Uh, so, and it's I would a case actually, that, sorry, just to interrupt, do you think it's a case that they've just had to step up and had to do it in this really efficient manner because we've had no choice? Well, you know, in the U.S. here, it, rather than trying to start something new, um, you know, they said, what, what funding mechanisms do we have in place that, that are fairly strong? And they said, for individuals, it's the unemployment system. That's how we're going to get checks or cash into people's hands. And for business, it was the Small Business Administration Loan Program, because it was fairly common to have that at all the banks and, you know, underwriting for banks. They can make those changes very quickly. Um, and so, you know, th there have been, you know, I I've heard some clients saying they've had significant issues applying. Others said, you know, we got through the first time. But as, as we were saying, the devil's in the details and, and a lot of questions about the underwriting process and what's going to happen to folks, especially my inbound clients. I have clients that are inbound Australian investment, you know, the portfolio companies, et cetera. And, you know, they don't have a tax ID number to be the person, the owner signing the, the application. And the client asked me, what do you think is going to happen? And I said, it, it's like any large organization. They're going to take the ones that they know are perfect and process them through. And you're going to go through another pile. And, you know, the question is, what's your relationship with the bank to get your loan application worked through that pile? <laughs> yeah, look, we've got the same issue because with this JobKeeper payment, they're not going to start paying the employers until early May. So we've got this five-week gap where they're saying, pay your staff, you know, keep that going. But if the business hasn't got the cash flow to do that, then the government is saying to these businesses, you know, go and talk to your bank and, and organise some credit through them. Like some and sort of bridge financing. Yeah, basically. Bridge, exactly right. Bridge financing. So we also have measures that the government has intended to do to provide a flow of credit. They're trying to make banks... Um, more willingly lend and there are unsecured loan options that are now in place for up to a quarter of a million dollars. And these are short-term loans, three years max. And it's allowing these businesses to go and get some finance and have a, a six-month holiday period um, initially for that six months. So they're trying to do things to keep the credit flowing. But I'm just also worried about cash flow because turnover and profit, as we well know in the accounting world, is a very different concept to cash flow. Yeah, you know, I, I think that when you have the economy basically halt as it is now, um, you know, it, it's going to come out, it's going to shake out in waves. And I was mentioning earlier, it, it's it's not just the restaurants that we're all noticing now and the grocery stores with the lines out front of them. There's industries that have huge liquidity needs suddenly arising, such as the mortgage debt, serv uh, the mortgage loan services, you know, and uh, and 
and, and has this wave, these wave after wave of bad news uh, is, is going to be falling out. Uh, we anticipate that there'll be more rounds of, of cash thrown at the economy to keep it moving. Uh, they're already talking the House here, which is controlled by the Democrats, the more liberal of the two parties here, is talking about plan number four. And I was shocked to hear that the Senate, is, which is the Republicans, is, is open to talking to them. Uh, so they, they see the crisis. And, and, and I I really say that it's good fortune for us that this is an election year because I think that there's a real incentive to make this go away and to make sure that it runs smoothly. Look, that's another dynamic you've got in all this. Thank goodness we're not in an election year, but you have no choice. It's built into your constitution, November every four years. Yes. We're heading straight into it. Yeah, we're taking census now. We're getting voter registrations online. I mean, it's still, it's, I think, you know, we're still going to go full bore on it. And it's, it is a very, there's lots of dynamics at play when we're deciding, you know, with respect to how the coronavirus um, crisis was, was, you know, responded to. I think history will look at it now and say, you know, how much of this was impacted by that. And I think it's a, it's a probably a big impact. You're um, going to have incredibly long back. voting queues because of the social distancing all the way down that line. Well, I think we're going to have to figure out a way, right, to make everything online now. I mean, no one's going to want to wait within six six feet of each other. I mean, that's going to be incredibly hard to keep people in queue. I mean, just the grocery stores on weekends are filled and, you know, streets and streets are filled with people waiting for the time to get into the grocery. So it's a very interesting time. Yeah, we just had an election yesterday in Wisconsin, and and the the two parties could not get along, and so folks stood outside in the rain in Wisconsin to vote. Goodness, yeah. yeah. It just at a time when you need your immunity, I mean, you're absolutely standing in the rain to vote your right. So, a couple of things which have become um, an issue here in Australia. One is the message that the businesses are hearing from the government isn't necessarily lining up with where we're landing in the legislative framework. And I'm interested from um, the US perspective, we've got rules that are very complex and have created all these eligibility conditions, which is fair enough and, and justified. But sometimes we're seeing a mismatch between what the businesses are hearing publicly from the government in media conferences. And when they go to their advisor, they're told, well, actually, you're structured in this particular manner or your arrangement is in this particular way. And so it's not eligible. And mm. this is causing a bit of confusion for business owners because they think they're eligible because that's what the government is telling them. And when they see their advisor, they're finding out that they're not. And I'm just wondering, when you create these stimulus measures and handouts and various financial forms of assistance, um, you also, I presume, would have eligibility criteria, but is it awfully complicated and are people finding that they're not understanding that they perhaps weren't eligible? Well, you know, the 500 employee threshold is proving to be a question that folks are having great difficulty answering. Um, when We're very used to looking at statutory rules that talk about percentage of ownership and you look at the ownership tree you trace it up at the top but the sba regulations on how you aggregate folks and consider their affiliation they're really more like ifrs they're very principles based some of them are very mechanical but the great majority of them are principles based and so you know our firm and, and i think most accounting firms are shying away from that and they're saying that's practicing law in the u.s and so we don't want to get involved in helping to answer that threshold question of how do I count how many employees do I have and so I think that's been a bit frustrating but you know I always tell my staff you know it's your time to shine and so for the employment law attorneys out there it's your time to shine I'm sure you're booked up from uh, morning till till night <laughs> isn't it interesting how certain industries are doing well out of this while others are just being decimated it's um it's the nature of it yes Yes, but, but that, that's proven to be, you know, the, the question that everybody's just struggling to answer. Um, other than that, it, we're very lucky here in that they structured the loan program very simply. They said, basically, look at your last 12 months of payroll or last year's payroll, certain adjustments to it, you know, throw out folks that are over 100 grand, at least give them a haircut to get them to 100 grand. 
uh, and we'll give you a loan for two and a half times that. So basically, we'll give you a loan for two and a half times your, um, you know, your payroll, and and we'll forgive it when you're done. And so mechanically, it was it was done. You know, I, I think that aspect of it at least has been very straightforward. Although you would think such a straightforward question, as we were talking earlier, there's been I believe two or three uh, SBA FAQs released that dealt with just how you count a payroll. <laughs> You wouldn't have thought and it was that difficult. You yeah. Would, yeah, yeah, you know, and, and the problem is, is that the politicians get on TV and they say one thing, and so you have this diversity of guidance out there, and so when the final FAQs come out, like, for example, the, the 12 months of payroll, do I count the 12 months for the period of time immediately before I filed the application, or last year, when there was conflicting guidance, and so in the end, the FAQ says, you know what, do it either way, that's fine. Just just get it done. <laughs> Another issue that's come up in Australia is that, and this is not surprising, they have built integrity rules into these new measures. So both in the JobKeeper payment, and we've also got another significant measure, which is about boosting cash flow for employers. So that measure is all about providing up to $50,000 in the 1920 financial year and up to a further $50,000 in the 2021 financial year to basically give employers a credit of the tax that they're paying on the salaries to their employees. Mm. So you understand the concept, of course, I pay you a salary wage, I take tax out of that, and I pay that to the tax office. And for the tax that I'm paying to the ATO, they're going to give some of that back to the employers in the form of a credit. And depending on how all the numbers end up, you could end up with a cash refund out of it. But this is based on eligibility criteria. You must have been pre-existing and you must be an active business and you've got to have what I call vanilla payments of salaries and wages or director's fees to start. And so they've built some integrity measures to stop people rearranging their affairs, changing their structures or doing something for the first time that they wouldn't normally do in order to get this cash flow boost or they've changed the timing of something or they've increased the amount of something. And so there's been a lot of discussion in our profession about the government making sure that people understand that integrity rule. And we've had to have reminders from the professional bodies and from the tax office and from the tax practitioners board who regulate all the agents in Australia to say to them, look, if you're going into these schemes, we can take these credits back off the employers. We can hit them with interest charges and penalties. If you're a promoter of these schemes, then there's a separate penalty regime that can apply to that. You could face disciplinary action through your professional body or from the tax practitioners board. And there could even be in the most egregious cases, criminal prosecution. So there's this whole conversation around, well, what am I allowed to do? And now some practitioners are getting nervous that, oh, I was going to do this, but does that mean it's going to be a red flag? And, you know, do you think this would be okay? Do you think I'm going to have a problem under the integrity rule? So it's a fine balance to work out which side of the line you fall with what you're proposing to do. Yeah, fortunately, we're not faced with a lot of those choices here because it, 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 there's a very clear delineation between some of the legal aspects of it versus, hey, I need a schedule that shows X and Y. And so um, we haven't struggled too much over that. But I think the, 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 uh, the banks that are underwriting the SBA loans are enjoying uh, being the policeman in, in, in some aspect to this whole process. And that's what caused a great deal of delay over here in getting the um, SBA process up and running was the banks were very worried about you know what amount of due diligence they needed to perform over these loan packages, even though it was really just something as simple as verifying a payroll calculation. And, and my understanding is that that held up things, you know, tremendously uh, because the banks don't want to end up holding the bag. You know, also, the, if, if you assist here, if you assist in preparing the loan application itself, you ha that has to be disclosed in the banks. Uh, I, I believe in some cases, and I'm not too clear on this, uh, have to pay some type of fee uh, or, or share their fee for the loan uh, origination with that uh, person that was assisting. And so, again, it's a matter of, two piles, one that gets moved very quickly and one that, okay, we'll get to that one when we get to that one. And so it has raised some aspects there. Um, besides these paycheck protection loans, which are focused on smaller business, the, the, you know, the, the administration itself has a huge, I want to say $500 billion uh, that they're going to loan out to larger companies. And, um, you know, folks are already saying we don't want any shenanigans with that. There's been several, um, 
for the legislation installs an inspector general over this entire process, and we're already fighting over uh, the administration's released the inspector general that was named to originally head everything and replaced him with a political appointee. And so now, you know, the, uh, the hijinks will ensue. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see, you know, once we get through this phase, is there going to be any litigation or reviews or adjustments or audits later? And the ATO's got a, a, a delicate task to undertake here. They certainly still have to protect the revenue. They are the administrator of the revenue system. But at the same time, they're here to implement the government stimulus package. So they're there to, you know, ironically for a revenue authority, hand money out to people. Right. And so this tug of war, this tension between, look, we're here to help you and we want to be compassionate and we don't want to shut down businesses because you're financially struggling. And the last thing we're going to do is hit you with extra penalties and interest. But at the same time, if there are those out there that are, what they call gaming the system, then there's right. not going to be any tolerance for that either. So, yeah, it's a fine balance. Yeah, and I yeah. think there's going to be a lot of more gaming the system when it comes to the individual packages too, for the individuals. Yes. And, you know, when we get down to the nitty-gritty of it, I mean, there's more gaming in that gamesmanship that might be going on too. Well, let's turn around to the individual side of things. So what are you seeing <laughs> on the individual handouts? Well, the individual handouts are pretty good. I mean, you know, we came out uh, very clear on uh, the guidelines. I mean, we have, you know, on our end, we can get loans uh, from the our qualified retirement funds uh, that are, you know, in, related to the COVID pandemic. Um, you, folks can get up to 100000 in loans on their 401ks uh, without any penalty. Usually there's an early 10% penalty if you get these before you, you know, before you retire or if it's not for undue hardship, things like that. Um, the, the pensions that were required to have minimum draws can be deferred now. So a lot of the rules around, you know, protecting the savings and retirement of people have been relaxed to allow for an extra infusion, you know, of, of money coming to their pockets to take care of this, uh, the needs that they have, especially if they've been unemployed, laid off, you know, and they need extra money or, you know, cause the, the reason for the loan can be, you know, uh, because you were sick from the disease or, or for, from the virus or, you know, an economic result of the virus. So it, it catches that both. We also have, you know, um, it's funny, you said the ATO is now in the, in the, in, in the weird position of having to hand out money when, you know, everyone knows a tax man cometh and we're going to ring that bell and we're going to get your money. Now they're handing out money. I mean, the IRS is printing out, you know, uh, sending out refund checks, not re refund checks, we call them rebate checks, you know, and um, unlike yours, I think you've got set fixed stimulus payments, our rebate checks are graduated, depending on whether you're single or you're married, whether you meet a certain income threshold, but they okay. do start at $1,200, uh, up to $2,400 for a married couple. Per um, what? Per month? Per fortnight? It's just a one-time, I think it's just one-off one payment. Yeah, one-off yeah. payment. Okay to help you with that and way, um, you know with the income threshold too like if you're above uh you know a certain um income level then you can't get this rebate check at all okay so you're ours you're, are structured you're differently so we've really yep. got three main measures for individuals we've got what's called a stimulus payment and there are two $750 payments so these are one-offs but there are two of them one now and one in july and that's going to people who are basically on social security so people that are receiving income support payments or their concession card holders, that sort of thing. Then separately for people who are broadly on what we call job seeker. Now I talked about job keeper before. They're the people who are still keeping their jobs. Job seeker is for the people who are out of work. And they currently get a, a, a payment of about $550 a fortnight. And that is going to be doubled with a coronavirus supplement with another $550 a fortnight. And that will give them $1,100 a fortnight. Well, that's a lot more than what we're getting. <laughs> I think. Yes, it is. That's, that's a period of time, not just a one-off payment. So people have the ability, if they meet certain conditions, and it's, again, based on hardship and you've lost your job or your working hours have come down significantly, and that's based on a 20% threshold, you can access some of your superannuation early. So oh, you yes, know that we've got topic, superannuation. superannuation. Please, you know we have more. very strict rules in Australia about accessing super. Yes. And in Australia, you can't access it until you basically reach a, a preservation age and you've retired. But 
we do have hardship measures and they've been around for many years. So if someone is in dire straits financially, they can make application to the government and access up to $10,000 of their super. What the government has done in response to the coronavirus pandemic is they've broadened that criteria temporarily. So until the 24th of September, you'll be able to access up to $20,000 from your superannuation fund by way of per two steps per person. Okay. It's two separate $10,000 payments. So you can withdraw $10,000 in 1920 and you can actually apply for that after year end and you can get a further $10,000 in 2021, but you must apply for this by the 24th of September. So this is really going to give people up to $20,000, which might get them through the next few months. Right. But you know the modelling, and you probably do more of this than I do. If you pulled ten dollars or $20,000 out of your superannuation fund today and you're aged 25 or 35 or 45, What's that going to impact on your end balance? How much compounding are you not going to get the benefit of by taking that money out now? And the numbers are quite staggering. You can end up with many tens of thousands or into you know, $100,000, $150,000 that you'll miss out on at the end by taking that money out now. Right. And then the super was intended to, if, if I recall, and correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, supposed to supplement the, the, the old aid pension that uh, you've got for your social security. Um, and so, yeah, by accessing that, um, you know, money at this time, you're kind of cutting the legs out of the third pillar of the social security system for Australia. And, you know, of course, an additional complexity would be if you were also a U.S. citizen and you're an Australian uh, with a super and you are taking the money out because a super for U.S. tax purposes is not considered to be a qualified retirement at this time. It's a foreign pension, therefore non-qualified. And so any monies that come out of there would be taxable in the United States and reportable on an income tax. So that is a cross-border complication that hasn't been kind of, you know, uh, vetted out yet. At this time, I doubt if anyone's going to say, hey, I'm not going to take out this money just because I'm afraid of what I'm going to report to the IRS because, you know, I have to report this money as taxable. But, you know, at the same time, that's kind of kicking the, kicking the can down the road um, because at some point you're going to have to report it in your taxes in the U.S. And there is really no solution right now. Um, Marsha, would there be instances happens? of Americans who have been working in Australia, so they might be here on a temporary resident visa, yep. and because of the effective border closures globally, may have decided, look, it's best I go home. So they've left Australia, they've returned to the US, and I'm just wondering, people in that situation must have accumulated some super whilst they're here, and I'm just suggesting they might actually be able to access their super, not through this measure, but through the Departing Australia superannuation payment. Oh, that's very interesting. That's a very interesting point you raise, Robin. Um, that might be something that they might want to take a look into. But, you know, I think, yeah, they, they're still going to have to report that as somewhere on the U.S. tax return. But at least that's additional source of income Correct. Um, at this time that, you know, when you're looking at your, because definitely the, the loan from our 401ks and our other retirement funds have to be repaid within three years. So it's not as if you can loan to yourself and then not pay it back. I mean, it's been lax since that you're not going to get the 10% penalty, but you still have to pay back um, the loan that you've gotten out. So that is a good extra source that, um, you know, lots of people might not be thinking about. And definitely, well, you know, that's why we're having our cross-border discussion of Corona cross-border. Absolutely. <laughs> and you will, of course, um, recall our discussion we had in our last Tax Act discussion back in February, where yes. we spent a whole episode talking about residency. And exactly. And now... Everything's now, thrown up in the air. And in fact, the ATO has provided some guidance on this. Because has the ATO pe- done that? That's amazing. Absolutely. So they've got a fact sheet and you're very welcome to, of course, dive into their website. It's frequently asked questions on COVID-19. But they have raised the issue that people are being displaced. Yeah. So it could be employees working for an employer who are either stuck overseas or they're stuck here and can't get back home from um, overseas. It could be that people are here longer than they otherwise may be. So they're, they're actually residency questions that may come up. Now, That's if you're true. stuck here for another month or two, that shouldn't change any particular outcome. But we know that when you start ticking over the 183-day threshold, yes. you know, it starts to change some of the dynamics of the way the rules are applied. So absolutely, they've turned their mind to this because displaced people can have tax implications. Yes. And, you know, the U.S., I don't think we've come out. I haven't checked the IRS website today on FAQs, but, you know, we've got our own 
own rules about residency rules. And, you know, when it comes to more than displacement for residency, I mean, if you have an employee of a U.S. company that's in Australia that's been there for more than, you know, I mean, and, and keeps doing work remotely from Australia because they can't come home, have they created a permanent establishment? for that U.S. company and essentially expose that U.S. company then to, you know, potential taxation in Australia. Same thing with an Australian company, with an Australian employee that's stuck here because, or stranded um, because of the, of the COVID. And I, I heard that the U.K. has issued um, some rules on this, but the OECD has recently issued guidance on it. But yeah, I, I don't think Canada has issued anything, but this is, this is a reality, right? People are stranded. And we'll start and to be having residency issues. Alan, the episode that I did with you where we talked about corporate residency, we went into a discussion about central management and control of a company because of this <laughs> determines where a company has its tax residency status. And the ATO has actually issued some guidance because following the decision we had in Australia, which was the... Um, um, all to do with uh, whether Bywater Investments was a, a company incorporated overseas and a resident here or not. A number of board members have been literally jumping on aircraft since that decision to make sure the decisions were made in an overseas location so that the central management and control could not be said to be in Australia. But with people unable to travel overseas at the moment, <laughs> it's caused a question to be asked about, does that mean our companies are now based at, uh, a resident in Australia because we can't hold the board meetings overseas? Right. And uh, my understanding is the ATO guidance says we're not going to devote compliance resources to checking the fact that you're not travelling overseas for a board meeting now means that you're a resident in Australia. So there are all sorts of things that fall out of this. Oh right. my gosh, that sounds like a very wink, wink, nudge, nudge solution. That's, uh... <laughs> but you know, I wanted to mention also another package for the individuals that is really very interesting, especially for cross-border, you know, dual citizens, dual citizens that, you know, are filing Australian taxes and filing U.S. tax returns and somewhere because they have a super, they end up paying taxes in the U.S., which should be tax-free in, in Australia. But, you know, we have uh, the CARES Act relaxed the rules on, on net operating losses and, uh, you know, disaster losses, too. So you can now carry back net operating losses to up to five years back. Um, you know, and for those are for losses that arise in 2017, 18 and 19, too. So there is now an opportunity if you pay taxes in the U.S. and you're in Australia and you've got these losses that you've incurred, to amend those returns now as a result of this and go back and possibly get refunds, you know, which is very okay. interesting, a very as interesting a, almost access, Using your losses to carry them back almost as opposed to a loss being applied against a future profit. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And look, we, we had something similar in Australia for a period. Um, you know, those rules don't exist now, but there was certainly the option at one time to be able to apply a loss backwards as opposed to carrying it forwards. Right. And I thought that was very special, a special provision of our package because I didn't see it in any of the other, um, you know, any other, other stuff that I've been reading about how the uh, legislations are being drafted. So and we, we certainly are looking forward to that because, you know, we had the Tax Reform Act in 2017, which taxed a lot of people globally because of our, you know, um, shall we say extraterritorial regime taxation. We had uh, a one time transition tax that applied uh, in, in, to a lot of individuals abroad that had foreign corporations and they had to pay tax on uh, earning, deferred earnings that weren't taxed in foreign corporations. And now, you know, with this new development, it's possible that you might be able to go back to that year, apply, carry back this loss and maybe not have to pay any taxes. So that's, that's kind of like the possibilities are just opening up to maybe get some money that way. You know, although it will take longer, it's not as easy as a rebate check, but cool. it is, or, or cashing out, you know, or taking a loan against your, you know, your qualified retirement fund or your super, but it is another option if you can, you know, kind of stagger where the sources are coming from. Like Australia, you've got a lot of state-based taxes as well. And we have payroll tax amongst others that is imposed on business in Australia. And we're seeing a, a lot of, various packages being offered around the country. Every state, territory, government has now offered payroll tax relief. And it's varying. Sometimes it's a deferral. Sometimes it's a waiver. Sometimes it's an exemption. In some cases, there's a refund of payroll tax already paid. And the thresholds vary and the amounts vary and the conditions vary, etc. But 
Is there something out of the state governments in the US that's being offered by way of some sort of relief? Yeah, and I should recap what the Fed is doing because I haven't really gone through that yet. Um, at, at the federal level, um, the employment taxes here are set up so that there's two components. There's a 6.2% social security component and a 1.45% Medicare component. And both the employer and the pl employee pay equal amounts of that. So they both pay 6.2 and they both pay 1.45. And so the federal government has said, look, for the employer for the social security part of it, the 6.2, you can... Don't don't bother paying the for the rest of 2020. You can pay half of it at the end of 2021 and the second half at the end of 2022. And then for smaller employers, there's very there's various um, payroll tax credits available for the social security portion of the uh, employer's share of payroll taxes. Uh, those are generally driven by whether you have been significantly affected by the uh, by government shutdown. Or secondly, in the quarter where on a year-over-year -year basis where your receipts have dropped 50%, that kicks you into qualification to claim some of these Social Security credits at, or Social Security taxes as a credit rather than deferring it, which is a better answer, of course. Uh, but th that's limited to folks that are small employers that have uh, 100 employees or less. And so the states, of course, are looking at this and as we, as Marsha and I always enjoy saying, the states do what the states want to do. And so, for example, California has offered a first quarter deferral of the taxes that were basically withheld from employees. Uh, nothing to aid the employer yet. Uh, but we anticipate that there'll be some legislation coming out later to allow that. Uh, there's only 18 states right now that have really addressed um, sales tax and allowing a deferral. Um, and so this is going to be a slow rollout. Um, when I talk to my SALT partner, he says the states are going to come in line. They're all going to adopt the Fed, et cetera. But we're coming up on a federal due date, which was also extended because of the, um, the coronavirus uh, pandemic. And, and, you know, I, I have one client that had maybe 22 states where they file, and I, I, I was reviewing what the manager had done. And on a few of the more aggressive ones, I just happened to check the website, and they were not lining up with the state yet. And so my manager had some notes to clear. Do you think this is well understood by businesses around the country or, and a second question is how quickly do you think the states can move on this as in the individual states to adjust their relief and, and provide this financial assistance? Well, a lot of the states are paralyzed by the fact that they have to meet in person to accomplish a lot of the relief that they would like to. And so we anticipate that in the months ahead and, and as things worsen, uh, you know, there will be uh, more payroll tax deferrals, more sales and use tax deferrals across the U.S. And the states will at some point line up with the uh, extended due dates, at least to the extent that they overlap with the Fed. Um, I, I, some of the states have been a little slow to allow a deferral of the taxes that were due with the April 15th extension. And I think in cases where they haven't, they'll say, you know, if you paid, thank you very much. And if you didn't, um, you know, we're, we'll probably just charge you interest because that's one thing, uh, unlike the feds who have said, we're not charging any interest, we're not charging any penalty because it's entirely discretionary. Um, the states in many cases don't have the ability to waive interest. And so to the extent there is relief, there may be a little bit of a drag, but we expect that um, they, they will all get on board eventually. It's just some physical uh, limitations at this point that are probably stopping everybody from rushing to provide relief. Marsha, have you got any comments about the, the way your state system's working? Um, well, you know, I, I think, um, you know, Al's right, you know, the federal is taking the lead on this and the states are, you know, the, the taxes are basically the source of revenues for the states. And, you know, I think just yet yesterday or the other day, we, California, uh, you know, the San Francisco, uh, it's it's a piecemeal action. It's, it's an initiative whether or not a particular you know, municipality or city will will defer taxes and tax payments. Like property tax payments are due soon here, and um, you know, everyone's asking, "Am I paying my property tax or not?" And you know, finally got issued that there will be a deferral. But a lot of homeowners and a lot of uh, people here in San Francisco were worried about that. So it's still there's still no unified piece of action from the states to move forward. You know, and get the deferral. So it's on a state by state basis, and even at a you know micro level, it's going to be on a 
municipality and city bases. So, yeah. Something else that I wanted to raise, we've had a code of conduct released this week by the federal government. My goodness, you guys are just all over. It's like, they're trying. You're on a roll. It's like, okay, we're issuing this money. We're getting this release, (laughs) but wait, it's not for free. You better stick by this conduct or else there will be repercussions, which is, you know, really good. It's like very clear. Actually, this code of conduct is about commercial tenancies. Oh, so what's happening is we've got these rolling announcements, you know, trying to keep up with every single day there's something new being announced. So reality is we've got businesses all around the country. And if we just take the classic example of a shopping centre and there's a whole bunch of shops and the shops are closing or have been forced to close. Mm-hmm. But the landlords are still insisting on rent being paid, but there's no income being derived by the business to pay the rent. Right. And so we're still waiting on some guidelines for residential tenancies. But what we've had is this code of conduct for commercial tenancies. And it will need to be adopted in state legislation and regulations. Broadly, what it does is say that a commercial landlord, and these aren't just the the big property trusts and the great big wealthy property owners. These are mums and dads and they're self-managed super funds. There are a lot of what I call smaller fry people that own commercial property. They will not be able to evict a tenant who doesn't pay during this coronavirus period. So if there's non-payment, they can't evict them for that reason. I think California has that too. Okay, which which is a good thing. Yes. Secondly, where the trade of the tenant has fallen. So let's give a quick example. Let's say the rent would normally be $10,000 a month and the trade of that business has dropped by 80%. So this code of conduct basically requires the landlord to drop the rent by the proportion that their turnovers dropped. So on the numbers I'm using, it means that instead of charging $10,000 a month rent, they would have to give them an $8,000 rent reduction. Wow. I love that. It's very and, easy to administer. Well, that's assuming we know that the trade has dropped by 80%. So I'm a landlord and you're my tenant. How do I know that your trade has dropped by 80%? You're going to give me your financial data and I'm going to trust that information? Just as here in the US, you, you, this is the Full Employment Act, right, for accountants. <laughs> exactly. So that $8,000 is then delivered in terms of rent relief in two forms. At least half of it has to be through a straight waiver. So the landlord kisses goodbye to 50% of that rent. So $4,000 they're never going to receive. The other 50%, the other $4,000 would then be a deferral. And this is spread by the landlord over the greater of the term of the lease or two years. So it's basically giving a rent waiver for part of it and a rent deferral for the other part. Now, if the business was closed altogether and had no income, then it would be 100% rent relief half would be waived and half would be deferred. Mm. And there's a range of other things they're doing, but it's going to be interesting to see how all this flows through. And just because you're not getting rent doesn't mean you don't have to keep paying your mortgage payments to the bank. That was what I was thinking of, is that where is the landlord going to, you know, get money to pay for the mortgage? Well, they can seek deferrals from the bank, but all the bank will do is say, okay, you don't have to pay at the moment. There's a rent holiday. Sorry, not a rent holiday, a mortgage holiday. Mortgage holiday. But they're still going to charge interest on that. Right. And the guidelines say, or the the code of conduct says, that the landlord should seek to pass on the benefit they're getting from the deferral of the loan payments. So not only are they not getting their rent... (laughs) but it seems that they should be passing on the benefit they're getting from deferring the loan payments. So the tenant gets the benefit of not paying rent. Now, I understand the tenant's got a financial problem with their business, but they don't pay the rent, but they also seem to somehow get this benefit of the deferral of loan payments. So it's an interesting design. It's very interesting. Um, you know, and, and the way that we're pa- passing out these packages to keep the economies afloat you know, at all different levels makes you wonder you know, how long is the coronavirus pandemic going to last? I mean, on a worldwide basis. And I think just with all the scale of measures that are being undertaken by you know, your country and our country over here, it, it, I think it's, it's pretty much a, a sign that we're probably in this for a longer haul than everybody thought. This is not just a common flu. I mean, you know, our systems are all being you know, halted. And at the same time, we're kind of applying shock treatment 
to to keep it away, to keep it alive. And in your in your beautiful analogy, Robin, you have to keep it on simmer so that you can keep it, make it boil faster again. Make it boil faster know, and bring it back. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's it's just turning on top of the rules. I mean, it's a it's a very interesting time to definitely be an accountant, be a tax advisor, be a lawyer. I mean, it's like a, the the essential services uh, to to interpret all of these provisions. But then when you're essential cost- services. Yeah, it is essential services. And further, the way our stimulus package has been designed, particularly the cash flow boost for the employers where they're getting back this credit for some of their tax on the wages, they have to lodge activity statements through the tax system to be entitled to it. So the whole mode of delivery of the stimulus is via the tax system. So it's not only that accountants are critical at the best of times, they're actually going to be needed to help businesses lodge the statements that is the mechanism to get the assistance back to the businesses. Right, right. So it's it's a um, full employment act for, for the industry, I think. Uh, um. Yes, but next question would be cash flow. And yes, the accounting industry is working really hard at the moment and it's demanding and the questions are coming from all over the place, left, right and centre. But does this necessarily translate to real cash flow where clients will pay for the services? And that will be an interesting question in the months ahead. Right, which is on everyone's, you know, it, it, it's, it's, I think it's a white elephant in the room. Yes, we're helping carry out all these essential, you know, applications and tax returns are getting filed and, you know, we're still getting things, um, in, interpreting all these new provisions. But at the end of the day, are we, are we going to get paid for the services? Are we going to get and paid for it? Exactly are right. Are we going to get paid for it? Or are we going to be the next, you know, Mother Teresa? Um, hopefully, you know, um, we shall see. This is a very interesting uh, podcast that you, Robin, that you, Al, and I have 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 started. <laughs> I am just glad I'm a tax person. I am not involved in the attest function because those folks are going to have an interesting <laughs> next few years. <laughs> they sure will. Look, yeah. it's been an absolute delight, and I think we could keep chatting all evening. But I know it's getting late over there, and um, <laughs> I will call this to a close. So, thank you so much. It's been an absolute delight. Um, I'm going to say seeing you both again. I've been able to look at you throughout this recording. I know. So. Thank you, Robin. Um, please be safe and be well, and um, we'll check in with you very soon. Oh, there shall be another time. Thank you, Robin. Take Good. care and be well as so, well. So, I just got to wind up. So, thank you for listening to this episode of Tax Yak. I've been chatting with Marsha Lane Dungog, an international tax lawyer and director of private client services international at Anderson in the US, and her colleague, managing director of Anderson, Al Nunez. If you'd like to connect with us on social media, you can find Tax Banter on LinkedIn and Twitter. Let us know your take on episodes or suggest future topics or speakers. You can also get onto the TaxYak team on email using podcast at taxbanter.com.au. That's podcast at taxbanter.com.au. And find our regular blog articles at taxbanter.com.au forward slash banter hyphen blog. If you're enjoying our podcasts, please take a moment to rate and write a review for the show wherever you are. We'll help to improve the profile of the show and we'd love to hear your thoughts. We look forward to you joining us next time and I will also add my personal message to you all. It's a really tough time out there, so take care of each other and stay safe. Thank you. Till next time.